0: This morning, I want to speak to you on the subject, true repentance. This is part one. Part two will be next week. True repentance. We're in a season leading up to the 150th anniversary of this church where we are pressing in with the Lord. We're in 40 days of fasting and prayer, and we ask you to pray and ask the Holy Spirit What he wanted you, how he wanted you to fast. And we're we're working our way through a a very interesting, good little fasting and prayer book where there are specific things we read and we pray every day. And I'll tell you, this subject of revival is so important, not only during a season leading up to the 150th anniversary of the church. But the subject of revival, of renewal, of a refreshing time from the presence of the Lord is so important to us every single day of our lives. This, this desire for revival, this desire for a fresh touch from God can be seen in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. In Joel chapter 2, verses 12 and 13... The Bible says yet even now declares the Lord return to me with all your heart with fasting and weeping and mourning and rend your heart not your garments. Now return to the Lord your God for he is gracious and compassionate slow to anger abounding in loving kindness and relenting of evil. J. Oswald Sanders touched on this spiritual dilemma, our need for revival, a fresh touch from God when he wrote these words. He said, it is easy to get out of vital touch with God. This loss of spiritual adjustment is not always deliberate, but it is nonetheless tragic in its results if the condition is not dealt with. Perhaps our present need is to be put back into correct spiritual adjustment so that we can fulfill our true function in the body of Christ. There's a word for this in the Bible. It's the word repentance. That's what God was calling for in the passage I read from the book of Joel, the prophet Joel, Joel, when he said, return to me with all your heart, Jeremiah used this term all throughout his writing and his prophecy. Return to the Lord. Return to the Lord. That is biblical repentance. Now this powerful emphasis is sprinkled throughout the messages of the prophets in the Old Testament. But this message is also sprinkled throughout the messages of John the Baptist, of the Lord Jesus himself, and of the apostles in the New Testament. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 2, uh, John the Baptist preached, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Amen. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, the very first sermon that Jesus preached was based upon these words. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, listen to what he preached. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is Is at hand. Now, many of you want to make a change in your lives, I'm sure. You've battled pride, legalism, bitterness, lust, addiction, materialism, unforgiveness, or a host of other unnamed demons for years. And you've promised, you've promised your, your spouse, you've promised your kids, you've promised your parents that you're going to change. And you fully want to change and you fully intend to change. But it never seems to happen. What's the answer? Well, I want to drop this thought in your heart today. And I want you to to write it down or, or at least memorize this in your heart. Transformation requires true repentance. If you really want to be transformed, if you really want to change, if you really want victory over the the demons that have been hounding you and hounding you and, and taking you down to defeat year after year, day after day, month after month, my friend, you've got to truly repent in order to experience transformation. Now, I want you to take your Bible and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Today we're going to look carefully at verses 9 through 11 and I want to remind you contextually that Paul wrote to the church at Corinth and called them on the carpet because they had fallen down into the trap of carnality. This was a very carnal church. There was even an anti-Paul movement in the church. Evidently, Paul wrote a letter to them between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. It's not in our Bibles, but he wrote a letter to them that was strong in its rebuke. In fact, in verse 8, we read in chapter 7, for though I cause you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that the letter caused you sorrow though only for a while. So when Paul wrote this strong letter of correction and rebuke to the Corinthian church that's not in our Bibles, he felt a little guilty. He felt like he may have gone too far. But then he came back and he realized that when he heard from Titus how God used that letter and how God began to work in their hearts, he said, now I don't regret it. I'm glad I wrote it, in other words. Paul's letter got their attention. When it comes to change, when it comes to transformation in our lives, everything, now underline the word everything there, everything hinges on true repentance. So this morning I want to begin by pointing out number one, the profile of repentance. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 9, Paul wrote, I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. Now the word for repentance here is the Greek word metanoia. It literally means to change one's mind. We find this word over and over in one form or or another throughout the New Testament. In Luke 15, 7, this, this, this word repent is on the lips of the Lord Jesus. He said, I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who does not need repentance. Luke 24, 46 and 47, Jesus said, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. In Acts 3, 19, the Bible says, therefore, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. You know, that last part, I love that last part. So that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Isn't that what you really want? Don't you want to be in God's presence? Don't you want to feel the refreshment that comes from being in the presence of God, the refreshment that lifts your spirits, that encourages you and motivates you to be everything that Christ wants you to be? And then Acts chapter 17, verse 30. The Bible says, Paul said this on Mars Hill in Athens. He said, therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance... God is now declaring, notice it, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. Now, the word repent or or true repentance is not just for the saints at First Baptist Carville. This word repent or repentance is for every human being on the face of the planet. Whether they live in India, whether they live in America, whether they live in South Africa, whether they live in Europe, wherever they live, wherever they live, the Bible says we must repent. Now, in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 9, Peter wrote, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Have you ever wondered why Jesus is tarrying in his coming? Have you ever wondered why there's such a delay? Here's the answer. God is delaying the coming of Christ so that people will have a chance to repent and be saved and converted and be a part of the kingdom of God. True repentance involves a recognition of sin that, uh, excuse me, it involves a recognition that sin is offensive to God. Let me drop that thought in your heart. Let's go over that one more time. Do you realize that any sin you commit as a believer or as an unbeliever is offensive to the holy and righteous God? Sometimes I think that we overlook that basic fundamental spiritual truth God is holy. In fact, the angels declare God is holy. Holy, holy. The Bible says that no sin can come in the presence of God. And when we sin as a believer, when I sin as a believer, it is offensive to God. And I need to repent of that immediately, if not sooner. (laughs) To repent means to turn from self and sin to the Lord. We'll get into that a little bit more in just a moment. So we're we're looking, number one, at the profile of repentance. But secondly, and this second point is long. It's long. But that's why we're dividing this into part one and part two. Number two, the process of repentance. What does repentance look like? How do I repent? Pastor, I'm dealing with this issue in my life. It's an addiction. It's a a problem with a, a sin of the flesh. And pastor, I cannot seem to overcome it. What is repentance? What does it look like in my life? We'll look at 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. Paul said, I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, But that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God. So that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret. Leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. Now, there are four basic aspects that categorize the process of repentance, and I want to go over those with you because I think they're so important. Number The first part of the process of repentance is the word conviction, conviction. Let me make this very clear. It's not the role of one spouse to convict another spouse of their sin. You may end up with a black eye if you're a guy, I promise you. It's not the, the role of a parent to convict a child of their sin. Now, it's the role of a parent to confront the child about their sin, but you cannot convict anyone about their sin. That's the role of the Holy Spirit of God. John, in John's Gospel, Jesus said this. John chapter 16, verses 7 and 8. He said, but I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. You say, well, who's the helper? The helper is the Holy Spirit. And Jesus said this to his disciples. And they had a hard time grasping this. He said, it is really to your advantage that I send back to heaven. That I occupy the throne in heaven. Because when I occupy the throne in heaven, I will send the Holy Spirit and he will indwell you and fill you and help you in all aspects of your Christian life and the ministry that I call you to. In verse 8, he goes on to say, and he when he comes, look at this, the Holy Spirit, and he when he comes will, notice, convict the world concerning sin, and righteousness and judgment I cannot convict anybody of sin I I can share with you what the word of God says I I can help you understand that if your life does not measure up to the word of God the will of God the way of God that something needs to change in your life but I cannot convict you of sin That's the Holy Spirit's role. In fact, before I came out here today, I got on my floor in in my office, and I prayed that the Holy Spirit would use the Word of God to convict people in this room and those watching by live stream. That's the Holy Spirit's ministry. It's the Holy Spirit who convicted Peter of the fact that he had betrayed He had betrayed the Lord. He had had denied the Lord three different times when Jesus was about to be tried. Peter did not make excuses. He repented of his sin. Who was the first one at at the, the tomb, the empty tomb, when the women came back and said he's risen? Who was the first one? It was Peter. He couldn't wait to get there. He wanted to get right with God. He wanted a time of refreshing from the presence of the Lord. He wanted to confess that sin and get right with his Lord. But Judas, on the other hand, was simply filled with remorse, not repentance. And he betrayed Jesus. Remember, in Matthew 27, verses 3 to 5, the Bible says, And when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that he had been condemned, notice what the Bible says. He felt remorse. Can I tell you there's a big difference between remorse and repentance. He felt remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders saying, I've sinned by betraying innocent blood. But they say, what is that to us? See to that yourself. And he threw the pieces of silver into the temple sanctuary and departed and he went away and hanged himself. He committed suicide. Why? Because he didn't deal with his sin in a biblical way. There was remorse without repentance. With Peter, there was both remorse and repentance. Genuine, heartfelt repentance. I I promise you this. The first stage of repentance is always conviction. And it's the Holy Spirit who convicts us of sin. Here's the second step of repentance. It's contrition. Contrition. We might say that Paul categorized the sin of Judas as worldly sorrow. This brand of sorrow sidesteps the truth to avoid dealing with the reality of sin in our lives. It involves every excuse imaginable. People say when they don't want to really deal with their sin when They may have a touch of remorse but no repentance and they're confronted by the Holy Spirit with their sin. They may say, well, I'm, I'm sorry I got caught. Or it wasn't my fault. Have you noticed that everybody's blaming everybody for their problems? We even sometimes blame God for our problems. It wasn't my fault. You just don't understand my situation. Or get off my back. Or who are you to be judging me? That's one of our our, our favorite go-to excuses. Who are you to judge me? You're not so perfect yourself, are you? And that's a way for us to get around the convicting power of the Holy Spirit in our lives who is trying to move us to a place of contrition, of of a broken-hearted sorrow over our sin. Now don't miss what the Lord wants to understand, wants us to understand about godly sorrow. Look at verse 9. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 9. Godly sorrow is according to the will of God. Look at it. I now rejoice not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. You say, Pastor, would, would God really Want to make me sorrowful? Is that really the will of God? Absolutely. Because God does not want your life to be gummed up by sin. God wants you to confess and forsake your sin and receive victory in times of refreshing from the presence of the Lord. Don't you want to live like that? Don't you want to live Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday with a time of refreshing from the presence of the Lord? We need this godly sorrow. It's the will of God for our lives. Look at this. It's designed to prevent spiritual loss. Look at verse 9 again. I now rejoice not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful uh, according to the will of God, and it produces a repentance without regret. Excuse me. Let's go back to verse 9. I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. I, I said, what does this mean, suffer loss? And I found out that the same Greek word used here for suffer loss is used in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 15. Look at it. It's about the judgment seat of Christ. You realize that every believer within the sound of my voice will one day stand before the holy Jesus and he will judge you to determine your rewards and responsibilities in the kingdom of heaven. And the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 3.15 where it talks about the judgment seat of Christ, if any man's work is burned up, he will suffer Loss. But he himself will be saved so as through fire. So I want you to understand that what the Bible is teaching us here about not suffering loss refers to a loss of our rewards in the kingdom of heaven. Now now look at this. Here's another thing I want you to see about this godly sorrow. Remember there's a worldly sorrow. There's a godly sorrow. It produces repentance without regret. Now look at verse 10. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret. You know what? I have never once in my life regretted repenting of sin. And I've had to do it quite a lot. I'm going to be honest with you. I I never will forget at Mississippi State University, I went to, I was lost. I went to a a film at Dorman Hall and when I got there, it was, a, it was a Billy Graham film entitled The Road to Armageddon. And I'm telling you, the Holy Spirit hammered me, nailed me to the wall with conviction and contrition. And it was not worldly sorrow, it was godly sorrow. And I couldn't wait to get back to my room to repent and believe in Jesus And I tell you what, dear friend, I have never once in my life, that happened when I was 20, I'm 69 now, I've never once regretted repenting of sin. I hope and pray that you could say the same thing. It produces repentance without regret. And then it leads to salvation. Look at verse 10 again. Leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. Now I want you to understand, if somebody's really going to be saved, the Holy Spirit has to do a work of repentance in their heart. The Holy Spirit has to draw them to the Lord Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit has to to convince them that Jesus is the Son of God, that He is the Savior of the world, the only Savior of the world, that He died on the cross for their sin, that He rose from the dead so they could be justified before God and so that they could have the gift of eternal life. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit does that and we respond appropriately by placing our faith and trust in Jesus, we're saved. I love what Alan Redpath said. Now, listen very carefully. You cannot be saved without repenting. But you are not saved because you repent. What does he mean? You are saved and forgiven. Because Jesus shed his blood for your sins on the cross and he was raised from the dead. So godly sorrow motivates a sinner to repent and place their faith in Christ alone. Repentance and faith go together like peanut butter and jelly. I understand that. I hope you love peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. But they go together like peanut butter and jelly. You can't separate the two. So we've noticed two phases of genuine, true repentance. The first is conviction. The second one is contrition. And the third one is confession. Confession. When the Holy Spirit convicts you of sin, you need to sit up and pay attention. Better yet, you need to stand up and take action when the Holy Spirit convicts you of sin. That's where confession comes in. The biblical word for confession simply means to agree with God. Let's just say that the Holy Spirit convicts you of stretching the truth, of telling little white lies. Do you realize that your white lie is like a black lie to Jesus, right? And He convicts you about it. Well, here's what confession is confession is not where you make a thousand excuses. Well, that's just the way I am. You don't understand my situation. A lot of different excuses. Now, here's what confession is. Confession is agreeing with God. Confession is when the Holy Spirit convicts you of sin, produces godly sorrow in your heart, contrition. And confession is when you agree with God, you say, God, you're so right. Oh, God, I'm so sorry that I told that lie to that person. I'm so sorry, God, that I gossiped about that person. I, I'm so sorry, God, that I've not been faithful in my stewardship. I am so sorry, God. Please, please forgive me. In Proverbs chapter 28, verse 13, The Bible says, he who conceals his transgressions will not prosper. You you know what that literally means? It means that your life, if you don't, if if you conceal your transgressions from God, your life will become like a rotten piece of cloth. That's the picture. But there's a second part of verse 13. But he who confesses, agrees with God, and, and forsakes the sin will find compassion. That's the power of confession. In 1 John 1, 9 and 10, the Bible says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. You realize that when the Holy Spirit of God convicts you of sin in your life and nails you to the wall about a very specific sin in your life and you refuse to agree with God and you make excuses, do you realize that the Bible says you're calling God a liar? That's strong, isn't it? Let me tell you, friend, that's walking on dangerous soil. The spiritual cleansing that leads to holiness requires a, a thorough, consistent confession of sins. I love what Dr. Gregory Frizzell had to say about confession. He said, the daily time of confession is God's primary way of conforming you to the image of Christ. I do warn you of one potential danger. Be careful to avoid confession that does not lead to repentance. When you become aware of a sin, be sure to take action to remove it. True confession must involve repentance or it is not genuine. Transformation requires true repentance. So, we've seen that there are basically three steps to this process of repentance so far. First, there is conviction, then there's contrition, then there is confession, and finally, number four, there is change. There's change. Imagine that you and your family are headed to a vacation. You're going to the beach, you're going to the mountains. The kids are so excited. Uh, Your your spouse, your wife is so excited. And guys, you're driving. And all of a sudden, you get an alert on your GPS that you're headed the wrong direction. Now, what are you going to do? May I make a suggestion? May I suggest that you turn around and start heading the right direction? Or you're going to be in for a long week. I promise you, brothers. I promise you. Well, that's exactly what repentance is. Repentance means that you change direction. It means that God the Spirit has showed you that you're you're headed the wrong direction. And repentance means that you change direction according to exactly what the Lord wants you to do. And exactly how the Lord wants you to live. That's repentance. David was the king of Israel. The Bible says of David that he was a man after God's own heart. He loved God. God had used him mightily. We've heard of his great exploits, killing Goliath, leading Israel's army against the Philistines. I'll tell you, it's an amazing man this David was but one evening when he was at the height of his power and supremacy he was on his balcony and he was relishing about his kingdom and he looked over the edge of the balcony and he saw a beautiful woman by the name of Bathsheba bathing he should have turned away He should have run into the house and taken a cold shower but he didn't and he was inflamed with lust she was the wife of one of his bravest most loyal soldiers a soldier by the name of Uriah at the time he was out of town fighting for David and for Israel well you know the story David committed adultery with this woman and eventually ordered his commander to make sure that Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, be killed in battle. What a heinous sin it was. So God sent Nathan the prophet to confront David about his sin. Sometime later, David truly repented, and he wrote about it in Psalm 32 and Psalm 51. In those two Psalms, we we see David's conviction. The Bible says in verse uh, 1 through 3 of chapter 51, let me get it for you. Psalm 51, 1 through 3, these are the words and testimony of David himself. Here's what he said. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. David was convicted by the Holy Spirit of God about his sin. And then we read about his contrition in verse 4. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. And then David's confession, Psalm 32, verses 3 to 5. David wrote, when I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away it affected him physically through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Conviction, contrition, confession. And then there was change. In Psalm 51, verses 10 to 13, David wrote. Let me find it again. I don't have enough ribbons in my Bible. I need some more ribbons. (laughs) Chapter 51, verses 10 to 13, the Bible, here's what David cried out to God. Created me a clean heart, O God. God. And renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence. And do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And sustain me with, your, with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your way. And sinners will be converted to you. David was convicted. He was filled with contrition. He confessed his sin to God. And he was changed. You know, David wasn't perfect after this. But you know what? David never committed adultery with another man's wife again. You see, that's change. You confess your sin and you forsake your sin. And God forgave him. And God blessed him. And God poured out his compassion upon David. Aren't you glad that we have a forgiving, merciful, grace-filled God? And I want you to know the Lord will do the same thing for you. Now today, we've looked at the profile of repentance and the process of repentance. And I want to remind you of the truth we're bearing down on today and next week. And here's that truth, transformation requires true repentance. Do you want to change? Do, do you have those besetting sins in your life? And no matter what you do, no matter what you do, you can't get victory over them. I can tell you, I know somebody who can give you victory over His name is the Lord Jesus Christ. But you got to do it His way. Let me ask you a question. Is the Holy Spirit convicting you of some sin that is draining away your spiritual life and vitality? Do you sense the contrition that is rising up within you? You got to deal with it. Don't make any more excuses. No excuses. Well, pastor, I had a rough upbringing. Well, pastor, I wasn't born with a silver spoon in my mouth. No excuses. Let me tell you, when the Holy Spirit points out sin in your life, you need to be ready to repent at that moment. So today, I'm going to invite you In just a moment, we're going to worship. In fact, I'm going to ask the worship team and the staff to come. I'm going to invite you in just a moment to leave your seat as we begin to worship the Lord. We're going to do this in the spirit of worship. I honestly believe that if we want to see the Spirit of God move in our lives, He does it best and most frequently when we're honestly and truthfully worshiping Him. So I want you to know that when we stand to worship in just a moment, it's not a, a time to just get ready to leave. It is a time to focus our attention on God. It's a time to worship Him, to praise Him and adore Him. It's a time to listen to the spirit of God, and it's a time to act in obedience. And I want to encourage you come to this altar with the Holy Spirit pressing down on your life about that specific sin in your life. Bow before him right here, right here. Confess it to him, just like David did, just like Peter did. Say, Lord, forgive me. Oh, God, give me victory over this. I tell you, he'll give you victory. He has the power to tear down strongholds in your life. You come. But if you're here today and you're not a believer, I I want you to understand that your sin is a big deal to God. Your sin, now listen, your sin will keep you out of heaven and make you an eternal resident of hell. I'm just going to be honest with you. Something has to happen with your sin if God's going to accept you into heaven. God's got to forgive you. But he will only forgive you if you recognize that Jesus is the Son of God. That he died on the cross for your sin, that he offered his body and blood as payment for your sin to satisfy the holy wrath of God against your sin. And that God raised him from the dead three days after he died. And he's alive. He's King of kings and Lord of lords. And you've got to believe that in your heart. And then you've got to make an 18-inch move. You've got to move from your head to your heart. You say, I believe it in my head, Pastor. You've got to move it 18 inches to your heart. And you've got to commit your life to Jesus. You've got to say, Lord Jesus, I believe that you're the Son of God. I believe that you died for my sins. I believe that you were raised from the dead. And today... I humble myself before you. Lord Jesus, save me. You're the only one that can save me. You're the only one that can forgive my sin. Lord, save me and change my life. Give me victory. I promise you, on the authority of the inerrant, inspired, infallible word of the living God, He'll do it if you mean it. Let me pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray that you would pour out your spirit. I know, Lord, that the only person who can convict anybody of sin is the Holy Spirit. Convict people of of sin, righteousness, and judgment, and bring them to the end of themselves, to to, uh, conviction and contrition and confession and change. Oh, God, please, for your glory and your honor.